Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're starting a, a new year of, uh, of Torah study together, so that, that makes me very happy. And um, so let's just dive in. Uh, very famously, um, and you know, when, when we finish the Torah, reading the Torah, we, as soon as we finish, we start right over again. And that's just a beautiful thing because, you know, how can we stop? Um, and there's a big party. It's a big celebration. We call it Simchas Torah, which is like the, I guess, the, the joy of Torah. I guess that would be the name of the holiday. And, um, and like I say, we, we, we finish reading and then we, we start again. So, so the last letter of the Torah is, is, is the letter Lamed. And then the first letter of the Torah is the letter Bez. And that spells out the word uh, Lev or a heart. Which is which is kind of cool because you almost think of the way a heart works is that it circulates blood throughout your body, it pumps and it makes a complete circuit around your body. So here it's sort of like this is the heartbeat. The Torah is the heart and the heartbeat of the Jewish people. We get to the end and then there's a pulse and then we start again and it spells out this word heart. Um, uh, I heard in the name of the Nesiva Shalom that if you sort of extend that, the, the very last three words of the Torah are Le'enei Ko Yisrael. And if you, if you take the, the last letters of those three words, that, that spells out the word uh, Kli, which means a vessel. So, so it means that you're the, the lave, the heart, is a vessel for Torah. So from here you see, especially going into the, the beginning of the Torah, the Torah is hinting you, the, the, the Torah is, is telling you that, that the, the bottom line is really your heart. And that learning is really, I don't want to say it's only meaningful, but, but that you're not getting it until it enters into your heart. And we're going to talk about what that means in a moment, how it can enter your heart. Um, but, but we have to understand that part of the human condition is this great divide between the mind and the heart. And we talk about it a lot, but let's just, just, just explain it, just the simplicity of it a little bit. You see, we've got these two... Have you ever noticed why some people who... Or let's just talk about ourselves. Why we know the right thing to do, but we don't do it anyway. Right? We know what we're supposed to be doing, but we don't do it. So, so there are different explanations for that. We say, well, I'm not motivated, or I'm not inspired, or, you know, we, we come up with different excuses. But the, the real explanation of why we're not doing what it is that we'd like to be doing is because this knowledge is just in our head, and it's not in our heart. If the knowledge were really in our heart, if it had really penetrated us, then we wouldn't, there would be no disconnect. We would just be doing it because it was, because it was there. It was part of us. It was integrated into us. So, so this is the, this is sort of the, the great challenge and in a way the great tragedy of what it is to be a human being is that you can know what to do and still not do it. Which is, which is not really intuitive. 
you would think that if you knew the right thing to do, that means that you would do it because you know the right thing to do. Like for instance, if you were to program a computer and the computer has the, the, the set of commands, it won't say, well, I'm not in the mood. <laughs> you see, we're so used to, <laughs> we're so used to there being a divide that what I'm saying right now almost doesn't sound relevatory at all. Sounds like, yeah, that's the way things are. You know the right thing to do, you don't do it. So what are you telling me that I don't know? But what I'm trying to say is, is that that is not the way it's supposed to be. And again, if you were to give a computer a set of commands, the computer would do it right away. There would be no debate. That, that, not that we're supposed to be robots, but that's how we're supposed to be. Right? We just, we do it right away when we know the right thing. That's what we're striving for. So, so when did this whole separation between the heart and the mind happen? So basically, it happened when we ate from the tree of knowledge. Okay, that's, that's where, as, as, as the Rambam says, everything went from total clarity, where, where we saw the world in sort of black and white, truth and falsehood, emes and sheker, right? And all of a sudden, we eat from the tree of knowledge, and it becomes, everything becomes relativistic. It goes from true and false to good and bad. Now, what's... They sound pretty similar. True and false, good and bad. You know, what's, what, where's the big leap from, from one to the other? Well, there is a very big leap because true and false are absolutes. Good and bad are relativistic because what's good for me may not be good for you and what's bad for you may not be bad for me. So all of a sudden we enter into this shadowy gray area, which is where this gap between the heart and the mind <laughs> begins to grow and grow and grow to the proportions of one end of the galaxy to the other. Right? Because the famous saying is that the biggest distance in the entire universe is between your heart and your mind. So, you see... With this in mind, I want to explain something or just expand the imagery of something. One of the things that Hashem commands us to do and, and which will be done for us because it's kind, of an interesting, it's a kind of an interesting thing that you see in the Torah. In one place, God commands us to circumcise our hearts and in another place, God says, I will circumcise your heart. So basically, the basic commentators say that one way or another, it's going to happen. Like, ideally, we're supposed to do it to ourselves, but if not, one way or another, God is going to do it. And in that, I, I think, you know, we talk about, or I like to say anyway, a lot of times that, that, that Judaism out-Darwin's Darwin. And, and what I mean by that is that we really believe in evolution. And, and by that, I mean that, that we believe that the entire world is evolving toward perfection and that human beings are also evolving toward a higher level. That that, that, that process is taking place and that, in fact, that, that process was ordained from the very start of creation. That's what Hashem had in mind from the very start of creation. 
which is our perfection and the perfection of the entire world. And hopefully without getting too far off the topic, I, I, I do want to try to explain something that, that has perplexed me for, without sounding uh, overly dramatic, for decades. Um, but I, I feel like, I, at least for myself, I have a little clarity on, so I want to share it with you. It says when God set out to create the world, that originally that he wanted to do it with what's called midas hadin, which means through strict judgment, right? Which is associated with the divine name Elohim. But then God saw that, you know what? That system is not going to work out too well because, you know, humans are sort of fallible. So what we're going to do is introduce this idea of chesed, kindness, mercy. And that's associated with the name Yudke Vavke. And that will temper the din that will temper the strict judgment and then the world can function. Okay, so that's troubling on a number of different levels. On a first level, it's troubling because it suggests that God is very, very strict and that God loves strictness and that what God wanted was a very, very strict world, one that only had minus a din. Strict judgment. But then God relented, and God saw, okay, well, I'll throw in a little mercy. And from this, you can get a very warped view of who God is and what God is. Remember, God's primary name is the Yudke Vavke, which means love. So if God is coming from a place of love, then what does it mean that he, his, in, his, in, his initial intention was strictness? Okay, lots of questions. And we'll throw in one more question while we're at it, which is, God knows everything. So what does it mean that God really wanted to do it this way? Then he thought, oh, it's not going to work, so I'm going to change my plan. Didn't God know from the start that that first idea wasn't going to work? Another question. Okay. Now, imagine, so let's try to explain or give an explanation for what was going on in God's mind. Why did he want to create it from this strict place of justice? To begin with, okay? And furthermore, let's add another thing, which is a related idea, which is right now there are two, there are two major schools of halacha, of Jewish law in the Talmud. One is Beis Hillel and the other is Beis Shammai. Beis Hillel is known as being a little more lenient and flexible. Beis Shammai is known as being more strict. So the halacha, Jewish law, goes by Beis Hillel, which is the more lenient one in this world. But we say that it will go according to Beis Shammai in Olam Abba. In the next world, it will be the stricter school of halacha. Again, you have a question. Well, wait a second. I thought the next world was going to be all fun. You're telling me now we have to go by Beis Shammai in the next world? <laughs> like, already that's confusing me. Okay, so all these questions are going to be answered, Douglas. Okay. Let me... Let me try to make it more down-to-earth right now as we try to give some answers. Imagine I give you a test, right, in school, and you come home, A+. Plus. Wow, that was great. I give you another test. You come home, A+. Plus. It's fantastic. You unload your backpack. Let's see. You, you had a lot of tests, didn't you? Let's see. What did you get on your test? A+, plus, A+, plus, A+, plus, A+, plus, A+, plus, A+, plus, A+. Plus. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. 
Like, there's no mistakes here. It's, there's just perfection here. That's what God had in mind. That's what God had in mind. When he envisioned us initially, what he envisioned was our perfection. That was his initial vision of a human being and of the world, perfection itself. And so what halacha would coincide with a perfect individual? Well, that would be Midas Hadin. That would be the, the strict halacha because you're getting A pluses and hundreds at every turn because you're completely in line with whatever the halacha is, whatever the Torah wants, whatever God's will is. You're 100% aligned with it. So because you are perfect, so therefore it makes sense that the nature of the Torah law would parallel your own perfection, which would be very strict, it would be very exact, because you're very exact. But you see, God also knew that this world was a journey, and that while he envisioned our perfection from the very beginning, he understood that it was going to be a process before we got there. And that's so beautifully expressed in the opening words of the Torah. So it says, Breshis bara Elohim. Now if you look at, this is the Medrash I'm quoting right now. If you look at, that means out of beginnings God created the heavens and the earth, right? So <coughs> if you take the last three letters of those first three words, so Breshis, it would be a tough, bara would be an Aleph, Elohim, it would be a Mem, those three letters spell out the word MS, which means truth. And the Medrash says that God put his stamp of truth on creation from the very beginning. God implanted truth in the world from the very outset. But now here's my question, which is the word MS is very amazing. Truth, it's very amazing in Hebrew because Aleph, it's spelled Aleph Mem Taf. Aleph is the very first letter of the Aleph base. Tuf is the very last letter of the Aleph base. And Mem is the middle letter of the Aleph base. So it's the truth is the first letter, the middle letter, and the last letter. In other words, how the word Emes is spelled is very important. Because it's the first letter, the middle letter, and the last letter of the alphabet. Not only that, but the Ramban says that the entire Torah is names of God. Everything is names of God and that the entire Torah itself is one long name of God. So how you spell something is very important. So if that's the case, if God wanted to put his stamp of truth right in the middle, right in the beginning of the Torah, why is Breshi's Baralukim, why aren't the last letters of those three words spelling the word truth in order? It's spelling truth. It's the letters of truth. But it's out of order. Why? Should be in order. So, as I've mentioned so many times, and I, I really feel like this is one of the core things I want to give over in my lifetime. So, 
I hope everyone really integrates this idea into their hearts. We'll get back to the heart later. God will. This world is still in the process of being created. Everybody wants to know, if there's a God, why is the world so messed up? And the answer is because the world isn't finished yet. And that's alluded to in the very first letter of the Torah. It says, Breshis, which means with beginnings. Now the word beginnings, I learned from Rabbi Tatz, beginnings means, if you hear the word beginning, that means there's a middle and an end. The very word beginning says there's a middle and an end. Otherwise you don't have a beginning. So God is telling us right at the very first opening of the Torah, which remember the Zohar says is the blueprint of all of reality. The very first word is telling us you're part of a process. This is the beginning, but it's going to unfold. Now, on a very deep level, the first seven days of creation, which the Torah explains, like that's the opening of the Torah, goes through each of the seven days of creation, stands, each one of those days stands for a thousand years. And these are the 7,000 years of creation. And this is a very, very deep idea. We're not going to go into it too much. But the last era of creation, the seventh day, which on a very superficial level is just the seventh day of creation, but we're also talking about the 7,000th year of creation, is talking about Shabbos. The seventh day of, of creation is Shabbos. And one of the names of the Messianic era, the era of perfection, is Yom Shekulo Shabbos, which means the day that will be all Shabbos. It's talking about an era, an era of perfection. Now at the end of that, of the description of the seventh day in the Torah, you have these last three words, Bara Elohim La'asos. Those are the last three words at the end of the description of the seventh day of creation, which stands for the Messianic era, the period that will be all Shabbos. Listen to the last three letters of the last three words, okay? Bara, Aleph, Elohim, Mem, Lasos, Tough. It spells Emet, and it spells Emes in order. <laughs> in other words, in other words, God implants truth into creation from the very start and the journey of creation is us working with God to clarify and make known the truth which will be which is destined it's part of the blueprint it's destined to happen it's destined to happen that the emet that the truth of creation the oneness of God will be known and this is our, our entire process. I'll tell you something. Someone came up to me on Shabbos and he, he said to me, this, like, this kid came up to me and he, he it's like I, he said, why are there two descriptions of the creation of man in the beginning of Torah? And, you know, I've, I've heard this question before and I, I heard a very good answer for it, but my mind went blank. And... Um, so I had to think. Oh, I had to think from the start, because 
On the seventh day, just so you know, on the, on the, God talks about all the different things that he creates, first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. Man's created on the sixth day, then the seventh day, right? And there's just an overview of the creation of man. Then after the, the seventh day, then it starts telling the story of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and the snake and the Tree of Knowledge. And it starts in the beginning of that, talking about the creation of man again. So... Why is it? Why did it reference the creation of man two times? So this is what I said to him. I said, you know, on the one hand, everything is absolutely in God's hands. Right? That's the first mention. God is just showing you everything that he created. On the other hand, God puts everything in our hands. And that's... Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with a choice and the ability to do the right decision or not so much. So on the one hand, everything is in God's hands and on the other hand, everything is in our hands. And this is the twin aspect that every human being has to go through. You know? You have to try as hard as you possibly can and work as hard as you possibly can, at the same time knowing that everything is in God's hands. And you can't get lazy and say, well, it's in God's hands. Oh, I know what I'll do. Instead of working, I'll just believe. I'll believe. <laughs> That's, it's a fool's game. It's a fool's game. It's a fool's game. You can't do that. Because that's not God's plan for us. God's plan is for us to work. And you say, well, maybe work was just the curse of Adam. And there's some truth to that. Because it says that by the sweat of Adam's brow, the sweat of man's brow, which some people interpret as the tears because it's so hard, um, that we have to make our livings. But that's also not really the deeper truth. Because it says before we ate from the tree of knowledge, before this curse came down for us to have to work very hard, before all of that, it says that God put Adam in the garden to work and to guard the garden. This is before we ate from the tree of knowledge which means from the very, very beginning, our time in the Garden of Eden was a work session. From the very beginning, from the very beginning, something was incumbent upon us, some activity was incumbent upon us to do something to trigger the gu'ula, to trigger the redemption, the completion of the world, the completion of the world. God made us partners with him to complete the world. And as we said, man is created on the sixth day, right before Shabbos, but then we made this, you know, we, we didn't exercise our free choice properly. And Rabbi Green said so beautifully, because remember, the seventh day is the first Shabbos, but it also represents the 7,000th year, right? So there are a lot of different time coordinates that are sort of like going on at the same time. And so what, what Rabbi Green said so beautifully, it stayed with me for so many years, 
that all of human history since the Garden of His, since the Garden of Eden has been God extending the period of Erev Shabbos. So for thousands of years, what was just supposed to be a couple of hours has been extended. And that seventh day, that first initial Shabbos, which was going to be the Messianic era if we had just kind of held on, it's just been pushed. It's one long, all of history is one long Erev Shabbos, one long sixth day. Very interesting. By the way, I think it's always important to mention if you were to walk up to a lot of people and said, what is the very first command in the Torah? I think most people who knew a little something would tell you, don't eat from the tree of knowledge. I think that's what most people would tell you. And it's not true. The very first command to Adam is, eat from all of the trees, but don't eat from the tree of knowledge. Very, very important. Because, again, you can have a warped view of God that God put you in this beautiful garden and said, don't do that. <laughs> he didn't say that. He said, eat from all of the trees. Just don't eat from that one. Very huge. That's a game changer. Huge difference. In other words, God gives us a beautiful world. He says, enjoy the world, enjoy life, but they're parameters. We understand this intuitively. Okay, then the, then the only question is, okay, what are the parameters and who gets to decide? But it seems to me anyone, the, the, it seems to me anyway, the one who gets to decide is the one who made the world. That just, you know, my house, my rules, right? I mean, <laughs> so it just seems to make sense. We're not always happy with it. We don't always agree with it, but there is a certain inescapable logic to it that the one who made the universe gets to decide how the universe is run. You know? That's, that just seems logical. Okay. So, so let's keep on going. Can, um, yes. Turn, so, um, so I want to get back to this idea of the heart because, because the, the idea being that um, that, that, that God says to us to, to circumcise the heart. That means that we have this barrier over the heart. And again, as, as, we, were saying, as we were saying before, a human being is, is unique in that it can, it can know the right thing and yet not do the right thing. But again, if you were to give a computer a set of commands, the computer would do it instantaneously. So it's not like a given, necessarily. In fact, you see, you see the flaw in our system. Okay. So, so we have this covering over our heart, and that's, 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 something, that's, uh, that's something that's affecting us. But, but instead of just thinking of it as a covering over the heart, what I want to do is just expand the imagery for a moment, which is that I'd like to suggest that that covering over our heart, if you just pull back a little bit more, that is the separation between the mind and the heart. Do you understand? That that barrier over our heart is not just like, okay, if we can just open that up, everything would go into our heart. That barrier over our heart is the separation between the mind and the heart. Hopefully, 
Hopefully you follow what I'm saying there. So, so the answer, the answer, and, and the Katzka Rebbe makes this point very strongly, that, that we have to, that we haven't learned yet until the Torah is reached into our heart. So I want to I give you a, a mushal, like a little parable, that kind of hit me during davening yesterday, um, as to the importance of understanding that it has to be in our heart, okay? So here's how it goes. Imagine this conversation taking place. You say to someone, hey, um, did you go to the concert? Yeah, yeah, I, I bought a ticket and I went to the concert. Oh, that's, that's great. Um, how, was, how, was, how was the concert? How was it? Oh, I didn't, I didn't go into the room where the music was playing. Oh, but you bought a ticket? Oh, yeah, I bought a ticket. And you drove to the concert? I drove to the concert. So you went to the concert. I absolutely went to the concert. So how was it? Oh, I don't know. I didn't go into the, into the room where the music was playing. Okay. <laughs> that might sound confusing. <laughs> So you bought a ticket, <laughs> and you went to the show, but you didn't go to the show. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, so, so what's the, how does that connect to the heart and the mind? <laughs> you see, a lot of people, they buy the ticket, they, they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for, for day school, or for college, or for classes, or whatever it is, they buy the ticket. They actually go to the event, which means that the knowledge is in their head, but they never bring the knowledge from their head down into their heart. And it's when it's in your heart, that's when all the music starts playing. So you bought the ticket, you actually got in your car and drove to the concert, but you didn't hear any of the music because you didn't bring the teachings down into your heart. And that's where the concert is playing. You see, here is the, the, the great insight. You ready? You know what's going to determine what you're going to do at any moment? How you feel about it. That's the heart. <laughs> it's not the mind. And unless the way you feel about it is in line with your mind, you're going to stand outside the concert hall and you're not going to do what ideally we're supposed to do or what ideally you may even want to be doing because you don't feel it. And how you act is based on what you feel, not what you think. Now, there would be some times where your mind will bully your heart into doing the right thing. But that's the, those are exceptions. If it ever happens. Which means that a person only changes and a person only grows and a person only aligns themselves with the ultimate reality 
when the teachings go from the mind into the heart. All right, now let me say it another way, because we're getting there, but I don't think we're fully communicating yet. So I saw from the Kutzka Rebbe something that, and I felt like I've been trying to put this idea into words for decades, okay? So here it is in one line, you ready? If you don't see God everywhere, you won't see him anywhere. (laughs) If you don't see God everywhere, you won't see him anywhere. That's, That's what we're talking about. And you're only going to see him everywhere if it's in your heart, if the Torah is in your heart. If the Torah is not in your heart, then sometimes I see him, sometimes I don't see him. Sometimes I'm doing what I think is the right thing. Usually not. Okay. So now... This series of talks is called Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. And I I try to give some practical tools. So now here's a tool. So how do you get God into your heart? That seems to be like, that would be very good to know, right? (laughs) Since everything seems to be dependent on that. Okay, so here's my bit of advice. And I heard this from... Someone, I can't even trace it back to who said this, but it was someone, I think, in Israel. And I heard it either from the couple who he told it to or from someone who heard it from them. This is so many years ago, I don't even remember, but it was an older person who told me this, and it was a long time ago. So which means that we're going back probably, I don't know, a lot of years. So this couple said that they were moving from Israel to America, if I have the story right. And this older man, this holy man, said to them, listen, you're going to a place that's going to be a lot less spiritual than, than here. So you're kind of going to be going down spiritually by making this move. So I want to give you some advice. And they said, yes. And he said, whatever you're doing in life, whatever's happening to you, wherever you're going, see God in what's around you. And if you see God in what's around you, then you're going to be able to make it and you're going to be able to survive. So what I'm suggesting is the following. The problem that we set up up until now was unless the Torah is in my heart, I'm not going to see God everywhere. And if I'm, as the Kutzka Rebbe is saying, if I'm not seeing God everywhere, I'm not going to see him anywhere. But now we're reverse engineering the problem and providing a solution. We're saying that if we consciously use our mind, if we use our mind to see God everywhere, 
in all the small mundane aspects of life. I made the bus, I didn't make the bus, right? I got a parking spot, right? You know, I, I reached into my pocket and there was a dollar. I didn't even know there was, I, I had left a dollar in there. You know, whatever it is, I, I ran to the phone and I got it right before the last ring and I was able to talk to the person. Whatever it is, all the little tiny small things of life, if we see that we're interfacing with God and interacting with God all throughout the day, God will enter into our heart. God will 100% enter into our heart. And then, once he enters into our heart, then it becomes, you know, we've all heard the, the term a vicious cycle, where it goes from bad to worse to worse to worse to worse. But I heard recently this phrase, a virtuous cycle, where it goes from better to even better to even better to even better. Right? So what we create here is a virtuous cycle, where we use our mind, right? Because this we have a little more control of over than our hearts, right? We use our mind to consciously see God in everything. And then as we do that, God enters into our heart. And now once God is entering into our heart, then we see him even more in absolutely everything. And what I would suggest is that as you do this, you have to keep something absolutely fundamentally in mind, which is that God is good. That God is good. Because if you're going to start seeing, like for instance, it seems to me that... um, There are two types of people who miss a plane at the airport. One who says that, um, you know, you know, I I missed the plane. Now everything is, you know, terrible. Or the other person who says, I missed the plane. How do I know that God wasn't just saving my life? (laughs) Two, Two different ways to see to see life. Right? You're, you're tied up in a, in, a, in a traffic jam. I'm late for my appointment. The world is collapsing on me. Or how do I know God isn't saving my life right now? I heard from Reb Shlomo a, a side thought, but it's a good to know. I heard this with my own ears. He said, whatever you see on Shabbos is a good sign. Sometimes you can see some some stuff that you go, what is that? <laughs> you know what I mean? But whatever it is, it's a good sign. If you're seeing it on Shabbos. So if you know that God is good, then as you're seeing Him in absolutely everything, it's just increasing your closeness to Him. And it's just putting God ever more in your heart, in the inner, inner recesses of your heart. And that's a beautiful thing. So, so let's just review. Okay? We just completed the great circulatory system of the Torah. We just finished the Torah and we're starting again. And the Katskarebi says, What are we celebrating? What are we celebrating when we finish the Torah? We're celebrating the fact that we finished the Torah and we know we haven't even begun it yet. (laughs) Because we know how infinite the Torah is. It never runs out. 
The Torah never runs out. That the last letters of the Torah and the first letter of the Torah, it spells, right, the Nitziva Shalom, that it's a, a kli, a vessel for your heart, that your whole heart is a vessel for the Torah. And then you have the final pump from the Lamed to the Beis. It's the last pump of the circulatory system of the heart. Lamed Beis spells heart. Because the Torah has to get down into your heart. And it can't just stay in your mind. And how do you get it from the mind to the heart? By seeing God everywhere. By consciously deciding to see God everywhere. And to understand that God is good. And to understand that this world is a process. And that God implanted truth in the very beginning of creation. And that this journey, this process, is just for us to reveal this truth in the world. And that that's the destiny of the world itself, and it's in the blueprint of the Torah itself. And something so beautiful, Doug was pointing out, that these last three words, where the word emes is spelled out, bara Elohim la'asos, aleph mem taf, that we say that, those are the... We say that during Kiddush. Every single Friday night, we say those words. And um, you can have in mind, as you're saying Kiddush and as you're saying these things, that, 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 that the truth is being revealed in the world. Because Shabbos is probably the greatest proclamation that there's one God in the world. Can you imagine there's been a people, the only people who have survived the meat grinder of human history. There's only one nation that survived the meat grinder of human history. <laughs> That's the Jewish people. And the Jewish people had the, the chutzpah over the last several thousands of years, over the four corners of the whole world to say, no, we don't work today. <laughs> Wait. Who gave you permission not to work today? You, you don't even have your own country. You're guests of our country. You're not even the boss. Who gave you permission to take one day a week off and all those holidays off? And we say the one who made the entire universe. He's the one. So Shabbos has been this beacon of truth and we can celebrate that. Remember, Shabbos is, is a miniature of the Garden of Eden. And you should know that it's just, just, just this, just sending out, just sending out, just ringing out the oneness of God, the truth, the truth of the world throughout. And I'll tell you something, just to end on this. Um, I was so moved by this. I was talking with someone who was telling me that they, they wanted to become Jewish. And they said that, you know how they decided? They were going to someone's house in Israel. Some friends, and I don't know whether even these people, may, yeah, I, I guess they were having Shabbos. And uh, they were at their table. And she said, you know what it was? I saw two things. I saw people gathering together at a table and all sharing a meal together and not gossiping. And, and, 
at the end of the meal, I saw everyone got up and cleared the table together. She said, every time I went, and it wasn't someone who was too good to help clear the table, and they would sit back. Everybody got up and cleared the table, and they were all speaking, not backstabbing other people. And she said, based on that, that's, that's why I wanted to become Jewish. And that's something. You know, it says in the Torah itself that the, the nations of the world will see our practices, and they'll say, what kind of wise nation is this? So, so sometimes we think you need a, a billion dollars in order to create some sort of super fund and, and to tackle this world problem or that world problem, or unless I'm a celebrity and I've got, you know, millions of followers on one of my accounts, you know, to be an influencer or something like that, you know, then who am I and, and what kind of impact do I have in the world? But, but we know the truth. The truth is, is that literally standing up and clear, taking your dirty plate into the kitchen and throwing it out can change the world. Isn't that crazy? And it's precisely because things like that can change the world is, is, is why there's a force in the world telling you that all that stuff is useless and has no influence. Precisely because it has such a deep influence. So let's just rededicate ourselves to, to doing the simple things beautifully, right? And to seeing God in everything.